0: You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleinman. On today's episode, we welcome back Seth Morris to talk about a piece he's just authored called Trump vs. the Rule of Law. Seth's piece explores the ongoing threat to the rule of law posed by Trumpism and expands on some of the observations made by MHI in our pamphlet, Resisting Trumpist Reaction. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In just a moment, we'll be talking with Seth Morris about the continuing threat to the rule of law posed by Trumpism. First, as we do in every episode, Andrew and I will talk about some current events. And up first, we have a quick announcement from Andrew.
1: Uh, Hi, this is Andrew with an announcement about an upcoming uh, meeting of Marxist Humanist Initiative. Uh, It'll be this upcoming Sunday, June 11th. Starting at 1 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Uh, The topic is revolutionary solidarity against, quote, personal, close quote, attacks, uniting philosophy and organization. And we're going to be discussing the philosophical, organizational importance of solidarizing with victims of slander and other so called personal attacks, why such solidarity is rare on the left and how to combat that problem, uh, and this meeting takes place in light of the historic legal victories uh, against defamation uh, won by Eugene Carroll and Dominion Voting Systems, uh, and in the midst of our own fight to make historical materialism retract a paper riddled with uh, misrepresentations and other serious errors. We'll also discuss whether the struggle against defamation that Marx waged, the so-called Herr Vogt Affair, Uh, which he regarded as crucial to the historical vindication of the party, Uh, we're going to discuss whether that contains lessons that can inform our current practice. Uh, Andrew Kleinman, that's me of course, author of Marxist Struggle Against Against Defamation, a 150th anniversary tribute to her vote, uh, and victim of defamation by the misnamed review of radical political economics we'll give a short presentation and then there's going to be uh, open discussion uh, so if you would like to attend the meeting please write right away because the, the meeting is going to be on Sunday uh, provide your Skype information uh, why you're interested in the meeting and why you've got interest in Marxist humanist uh, initiative so write to MHI at Marxist humanist initiative uh, org.
0: We're recording this current event section on June 7th of 2023 and we are going to be making our first foray as a podcast into the true crime genre discussing the mysterious case of a woman named Randy Nord. Randy Nord was just charged with counts of ethnic intimidation and malicious destruction of a building for vandalizing a Jewish synagogue in the suburbs of Detroit back in April. What makes her case particularly interesting for us is that Randy Nort is a tanky. She is a member of the Workers' World Party. She's written many articles for their site. Uh, she's gone on a regional speaking tour with the Workers' World Party. She's also involved with some website called the Gray Zone, which is associated with Aaron Maté, Max Blumenthal, the Black Agenda Report. And it appears that her crime, her defacing of the synagogue, in which she wrote a swast drew a swastika on the building, it appears that her crime was motivated by her ideology, her like anti-imperialist, tanky ideology. She's confessed to the crime of painting a swastika on this synagogue along with the word Azov or Azov. Most of you probably know Azov is the name of a battalion within the Ukrainian army that has a reputation for being riddled with Nazis. And evoking the Azov battalion is often something done by critics of the Ukrainian resistance. They want to discredit the entire project of resisting the Putin invasion by basically playing into this line, this Putin line, that Ukraine is full of Nazis and the Russians are liberating Ukraine from Nazis.
1: So, like, why is is this Workers' World Party member doing this stuff? Well, the reports indicate that she's confessed to the police. A detective there, Dan Pelletier, said that Nord told him, quote, I'm trying to commit a slew of hate crimes and blame all of them on Azov Battalion. He also said, quote, Nord explained that she was blaming Azov, quote, so that everybody gets pissed that the United States is involved in Ukraine. And he said that she stated, quote, I'm trying to get everybody scared and trying to get everybody hyped up. Nord said her goal was pretty much trying to foment a war in a lot of ways.
0: In this way, she's not unlike people who are motivated by Trump to attack synagogues. They're also trying to start a race war.
1: Yeah, I don't know that she would characterize it as a race war, but I mean, it is an anti-Semitic attack. I mean, uh, I listened to uh, Bill Weinberg's podcast and he said, "Okay, this is a false flag operation. It was not really Azov that did it. She's putting a swastika on on the wall. She's not really for Azov, of course, but the anti-Semitism is real. The Jewish community is scared, up in arms and so forth, because it's not her only anti-Semitic attack. She's been involved in numerous other crimes since recently re- returning from Serbia. Nord apparently, quote, told the police she also painted a swastika on a child's stroller and on a car at a synagogue in Oak Park, which is another nearby suburb of, of Detroit. And in nearby Farmington Hills, another suburb, there was a fire at a building that housed the Church of Scientology, and police checked that out. They located Nord, and she got charged with that crime as well. Detective Dan Peltier says family members have reportedly been threatened by Nord, and she's also reportedly made threats to airports in Oakland County and Wayne County, Michigan. So she's on a real crime spree. Yeah. So what do we want to say about
0: this? Some people might say, well, look, you can't just like hold the organization Workers' World Party and their ideology responsible for the violence of a lone actor. Like she's perhaps mentally ill and or acting on her own reasons and her own logic. So just because we disagree with her politics, it doesn't mean that their like anti-Semitic violence is a direct result of tanky politics around the Ukraine war, you know, pseudo anti imperialism, the sort of things we've criticized in the past. So what is our response to that, that line of thinking?
1: Well, I don't know what yours is. I, I know what mine is.
0: I mean, my instinct would be like in the same way that like not all Trumpites go out and burn down synagogues or shoot up a synagogue. The more you spew like hatred and bigotry and normalize that, you're going to get mentally ill people who like act out of this sort of way. So, and So in the same way that the Workers' World Party like spreads a bunch of crap about blaming NATO and the U.S. for the war in Ukraine and trying to act like Ukraine is riddled with neo-Nazis and such. These kind of ideas, you're going to like inspire crazy people to go out and like act on this nonsense.
1: Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I would say a few other things. One, I tried to find any comment by Workers World on this. There was none that I could find. An offshoot from Workers' World, the recently formed group called Communist Workers' League has a short notice on their website condemning this, but nothing from Workers' World that I could find. Also, I would say she has an ideology that can basically be summed up as the ends justify the means. And you look at her actions and that can be summed up as the ends justify the means. Here's, here's what she said. This is uh, from an interview with her on the Black Agenda Report website, which is like a, a Stalinist, pro-Tanky, pseudo-anti-imperialist uh, group. This was in April of 2018. She said, U.S. imperialism is really the biggest threat not only to world peace, but sustainability and growth around the world. It takes very strong and educated principles to stand with nations and leaders who are labeled dictators and murderers with backward ideologies. I think Iran and DPRK, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, are good examples of this. She says, anti-imperialism to me means supporting nations in the struggle against my government's violent and exploitative influence. My job is to offer support and not criticism. I think it's really that simple. Our work is needed now more than ever to combat this narrative and show readers who the real aggressor is. So you don't you don't like U.S. imperialism so you go and you support the theocracy in, in Iran, you support Kim Jong-un in, in, in Korea. The end's clearly justify the means. You don't criticize them. You offer their support. It's the same mentality to her politics in general that's guiding her her attacks. I mean, mean, she calls it a principle, and I guess in some perverted way, it, it is a principle not to have any principles other than you support whoever is opposed to the U.S. I guess that's a principle. There are other things as well concerning her association with, let's say, the Mint Press News, which another source, Bill Weinberg, got a lot of his information from Bob from Broccoli, they have both gone into, in some detail, this Mint Press News and her association with Mint Press News, their own sort of false flag operations and, 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 and so forth uh, over the years. Bob from Broccoli basically says that uh, he says she's, she's operating from the, the, the Putin playbook of false flag operations there's a, at least a similarity to what she's doing and their kind of stuff over the years. I don't know. I mean, is she mentally unstable? Like, does it matter? If we find out, yes, she's mentally unstable, how does that change anything?
0: It's such a strange story. It's such a bizarre plot. It's hard to imagine how this vandalism was to actually achieve anything politically. But it's also like crazy to me to think that someone who claims they're part of the left, could be so tone deaf to what's going on with rising anti-Semitism, rising fascist violence in the U.S. could be so tone deaf to that that they could contribute to that type of violence and intimidation in the name of furthering some sort of left cause.
1: Right. But people that she's been identifying with for a long time are part of this collaborationism between left and right, and or even even more, they've got an ideology that merges left and right. According to this Bob from Broccoli, she started this website, Geopolitics Alert, to promote the multipolar agenda of uh, Alexander Dugan, who is a Russian fascist ideologue and he had a message of a Eurasian resistance to Western hegemony and a vision of a multipolar world. He's been very important to the anti-American, pseudo-anti-imperialist campus. That's their new vision, you know, is this multipolarity, and that is kind of like the replacement for Marxism. The world in which she's living really does, you know, I don't know if it's a horseshoe or it's it's red-brown collaborationism.
0: Well, that is some crazy stuff. Stalinists and Duganists inspiring each other to attack synagogues. Well, (laughs) up next, we talk with Seth Morris about the Trumpist threat to the rule of law. Today is June 2nd, and we are pleased to welcome Seth Morris back to the podcast. Attentive and regular listeners will perhaps remember that Seth Morris was on A panel of guests we had a few episodes back discussing an open letter to historical materialism. We are back with Seth to talk about a piece he's just written, which is um, With Sober Senses, the online publication of Marxist Humanist Initiative. And Seth's piece is entitled Trump versus the Rule of Law. The subtitle is... For Continued Resistance Against Trumpist Reaction and Left Accommodation. So welcome, Seth, back to the podcast. Hi,
1: thanks. Happy to be here. Yeah, welcome back, Seth. Yeah, I must say I really enjoyed Seth's essay. I think it's moving forward, the perspectives that Marxist Humanist Initiative has had since before Trump got elected in 2016. There's some new stuff there. So I found, just to start, the title of your essay really striking. Trump versus the rule of law, and I found the verses very striking. Since Trump and his lackeys and Trumpite base, they continue to peddle the longstanding Republican law and order trope. You know, law and order, law and order, law and order. Okay, that's the r- rhetoric. What do you say about the reality as opposed to the rhetoric?
2: So when Trump talks about law and order, that always reminds me of I felt. At the beginning of his presidency, being extremely worried about what he would be allowed to get away with in terms of his hatred of immigrants. And, you know, we saw it challenged in the courts when he tried to impose a Muslim ban. I think there was a state judge who struck that down, and that really angered Trump. But in terms of Trump's callousness for human rights, his Mexican border policy has been, you know, a constant example of that threat of Trump's idea of law and order. There's always a tremendous amount of tension between what Trump wants to do and what the law lets him do. And he obviously has no respect for laws against sexual assault or against defamation or hate crime or conspiracy insurrection against the U.S. government. But on the other hand, he's always eager to implement the death penalty for suspected criminals Without evidence or trial. He talks about this in speeches all the time and interviews. And that kind of law and order, this kind of executioner style law and order, shouldn't be legal in any society. But that's the kind of law that Trump means when he uses that phrase. And the slogan, law and order, is reactionary and it's always posed as an authoritarian political alternative to democracy. And reactionaries use this phrase to demonize. Democracy as the cause of social disorder, as the cause of rampant criminality, the cause of impending catastrophe, which is all completely counterfactual and has no basis in evidence. But Trump's support and encouragement of violent policing doesn't mean he supports the rule of law. It means he wants to undermine the rule of law's capacity to protect Black lives from police officers by holding police accountable for their actions. He doesn't want to be held accountable for his actions actions, he seems unable to understand what legal accountability means, considering how whenever any credible allegation is brought against him, he doesn't try to coherently prove his innocence. He doesn't provide a defense that's credible in any way. He just yells that this is a witch hunt and the courts are being politicized and weaponized against him when they're just following basic legal procedure. And that's what I think the rule of law is and why it's such a threat to Trump and why Trump's politics are such a threat to
0: the rule of law. I feel like the concept of rule of law and of law and order get mixed up in people's minds. Sometimes people don't understand like what the term rule of law means. I, your, your response is reminding me of a back and forth I got into with somebody when Trump was running for re-election and I was saying that in the rule of law is at stake. If Trump wins again, it's going to be the end of the rule of law in America. And this person responded to me by saying that because I was defending the rule of law, I was supporting like abusive police practices, and it was you know sort of trying to associate me with law law and order politics. And I was like, you these are completely different concepts. They're they're opposed to each other. You have the rule of law means that people are protected from arbitrary authority. That you have a society where everyone's treated equally before the law. And appeals to law and order that is a dog whistle term for like racist policing and for allowing police to be arbitrary in the use of authority. They're they're like polar opposite concepts, but people I think conflate the two and don't realize that, that they're opposites, you know?
1: Yeah. And and not only, not only police, but you know, vigilantes like Kyle Rittenhouse and and, and so forth get wrapped up into that. There's something that's been going around on like Twitter and stuff. Somebody summarized this all very uh, neatly I don't have the exact phrase, but it's kind of like this law and order idea is there is a law that protects some people and does not punish them. And then there are other people whom the law punishes, but does not protect. That's their idea. Whereas the the rule of law is in principle, universal. It applies to everybody. But what you've got is this this othering, you know, this exclusionism, white supremacy and so forth wrapped up in the, the, the law and order. So the law is to protect us, to help us, to punish them, to keep them down. But laws should never apply against us. And, and, and you know, Trump is like the prime example of this. Like his uh, cousin, Mary Trump, says he, he, he knows what the law is. He just doesn't think it should apply to him. So yeah. that, that, that's, the, that's their conception, is that they're exempt from the punishments and strictures of the law, and the law is there to, to help them.
0: So why is the law and order trope so appealing to the Trumpite base, despite the fact that there's this contradiction between the rhetoric of law and order and the reality of it? You, you talk about that in your essay.
2: Part of why the law and order rhetoric is effective is because it's not really a phrase to be taken literally and debated. When Trumpists talk about law and order, they're not saying, you know, this is a democratic debate. We'll, we'll find out what equal rights make sense for everyone. That's absolutely not what they're talking about. They're talking about their law and their order, whatever that means. So it is a signal in the way I think the phrase like culture war is a right wing signal. And I think that signal appeals to audiences, superstitions, or their hunches that any freedom or Liberal democratic freedom from authoritarian control, based on traditional values, leads to the moral decline of society. That if democracy isn't based in the enforcement of traditional values, then society is in decline. Because if it's not my values, then it must be wrong, which is completely impossible to deal with in democratic terms, as far as I'm concerned, or to debate. But I think it's also interesting that. Um, Where to place law enforcement in this distinction between rule of law and law and order? Because the Trumpist Republicans have always had a kind of exceptional suspicion of the FBI. I mean, they love conspiracy theories, but they back the blue, but not when police officers arrest fascist insurrectionists. Then the police are being weaponized and they're not following the rule of law, even though they're, you know, exactly. I don't
0: know. Oh, yeah. The hypocrisy is like... On full display, when you have Trump attacking the FBI <clears throat> and then claiming to be a law and order candidate, its when you have rioters beating up police officers uh, at the Capitol building, it's crazy
1: yeah there was i mean it was just like right there out in the open glaring a month or two ago in congress there was some meaningless resolution to thank law enforcement or whatever and there was like local law enforcement and the democrats wanted an amendment to add and federal law enforcement you know meaning the fbi presumably the department of justice and the republicans wouldn't go for it they defeated it so it's like yeah we're going to praise and commend local law enforcement but you know we're not going to have anything to do with uh, the the feds here it's beyond trump per se it's it's now you know the whole trumpified republican party that's gotten into this so in your essay seth You argue, and let me quote, a coherent left politics must defend liberal democracy, not only against the political right, but also against the infiltration of reactionary politics into the left. Uh, And then you give some recent examples of this infiltration of reactionary politics into the left. And you you talk about how it constitutes a form of left accommodation to Trumpism. Specifically, what you're doing is you're pushing back against so-called leftists who've criticized Alvin Bragg's prosecution of Trump. Alvin Bragg, the, the district attorney here in Manhattan. So what are the so-called leftist critics saying, and what's wrong with what they're saying, and what makes what they're saying reactionary or a form of left accommodation uh, to Trumpism?
2: Yeah, well, I t- I picked out two articles that I sound especially indicative of some of the problems going on with left accommodation, but specifically involving Bragg prosecution and. In- These articles are from Compact Magazine and Jacobin Magazine, and they both essentially make the same point, which is the Trumpist point lie that the Democratic Party is weaponizing the courts against Trump and that Alvin Bragg's prosecution is just another piece filling out this puzzle. And Compact Magazine, you see the hardline pro-dictator take from Christian Parenti, who's saying that Trump shouldn't be prosecuted at all. Prenti's Arguing that prosecuting Trump for anything is somehow evidence of Democrat conspiracy against the entire legal system. And Prenzi's opinions more than accommodate Trump, they support his complete legal and ethical impunity. Which, if you look at the article, it's just hard making sense of one sentence to the next. But there's a kind of softer accommodation taken Jacobin that um, is a little different. And saying that Alvin Bragg's charges are asking too much, that instead of pursuing felony charges, he should have set the low bar of misdemeanor charges for Trump's falsified business record. There have been opinions about what's going on with the evidence for the felony charges in that prosecution. I don't know. Some people have been speculating what that evidence might be and what the charges would be to make it a felony. I don't know for sure, but here's the point. The article in Jacobin isn't just skeptical about the outcomes of the trial. It doesn't think that maybe this might not work out ideally, which is maybe okay to argue. But the Jacobin article is primarily skeptical about Bragg's motives as a prosecutor. And it's basically planting the idea in the reader's head. Bragg is one of many unprofessional, extremely partisan elites who are using Trump as a pretext to recklessly weaponize the government against enemies of the Democratic Party, that same trope. And this kind of all sounds like the Trumpist boogeyman of liberal fascists, that liberals are the real fascists, or that Democrats are demon or something like that, because I think it is kind of a diabolic view of the Democratic Party and how it works and how the legal system works, that you're not taking the facts seriously and making your judgments based on what's actually happening. You're just trying to guess people's motives and you assume those motives are terrible. My thoughts on the ongoing investigation are that Democrats are humans, they're not demons. And Alvin Bragg is doing what he should be doing as Manhattan District Attorney, just like Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger were doing what they were supposed to be doing as Congress members by working on the January 6th committee. It's like the procedure is not just a craft for making America worse, but the legal procedure is something with checks and balances that are easily lost when you're trying to guess people's selfish motives in every action.
1: Yeah, let me just say about Alvin Bragg and the the felony charges. The the basis for, for making the case a felony case is that the falsification of business records in the pursuit of a crime makes that falsification of business records a felony. So that is what the district attorney is saying saying not only did Trump falsify business records, but he did so in pursuit of a crime, and that is a felony. And the only issue is that the Trump lawyers and and so forth, they want to know exactly what the crime is that, the district attorney is alluding to here. And the district attorney is saying, well, you know, we'll get to that when the time comes. We're not going to tell you yet. So this whole idea that there's some sort of mystery here or shenanigans, it's not true. And it's helping Trump muddy the waters and basically try to get information that he's not entitled to at this point. But i like to go back to what you were saying about Christian Parenti. I mean, you basically said that what he says doesn't make sense from one sentence to the next Uh, could you give an example of like sentences that the conclusion doesn't follow from the setup
2: i think it's probably easiest to just read the last paragraph of frenzy's article quote for better or for worse american presidents have been shielded from prosecution the downside of this is that our leaders haven't faced consequences for their crimes despite having done far worse than trump but the upside is that political struggles are confined to the realm of politics and electioneering, and the justice system is protected from con- contamination by partisan vendettas. The American judiciary, for all its faults, is often the last protection people have against the overreach of permanent state bureaucracies and corporate power. With the Trump arrest, we have crossed a dangerous threshold. So Parenti's argument, his conclusion basically, is that because the judicial system is not treating Trump specifically as above the rule of law because he was president. We have crossed a dangerous threshold and we're losing the last protection we have against the overreach of permanent state bureaucracies and corporate power. So I can see what is intimating and what he wants the audience to believe, but I don't see how someone could believe that.
1: So what he's saying is it's Crossing a threshold from law to lawlessness to say that no one is above the law. To make Trump accountable and have and say he has to follow the law and he's not above the law, that's somehow breaching legality. Th- that's Parenti's argument?
2: yes according to his words as far as i can tell That's a, it seems
1: yeah different. yeah it, it's bizarre for better or worse they're shielded from prosecution meaning they're above the law and by not keeping trump above the law we've moved from law to lawlessness we've crossed the threshold it doesn't make any sense to me either brendan how about you
0: <laughs> I, I can only guess but i assume he's arguing that the democratic process of electing leaders is being bypassed by prosecutors who are trying to, you know, overthrow the will of the people or something by prosecuting politicians. Uh, I assume that's the argument he's making.
2: Yeah, I guess he's just inflating this totally made up threat of Democrats seizing the government through prosecuting Trump, implying that Trump doesn't deserve to be prosecuted, or that relative to the corruption of the Democrats, that we need Trump to stand up for us.
0: I There, there are a lot of different layers in like leftist accommodation for Trumpism and Sometimes they don't always fit together perfectly like a perfect jigsaw puzzle. But it reminds me of the response to the prosecution of January 6th, criminals by certain people in the left. You know, they had people, you had people like Ben Burgess and people with Jacobin who wanted to refer to the insurrectionists as protesters and complain about the FBI going after these people. And it seemed like, I, I don't know if I can totally articulate it, but it was like those people on the left didn't have any concept of the rule of law in their politics. Politics was just about power grabs. Like politics was just a system of like people- Asserting power in different places. And so the idea of like having to th- th- the fight for or advocate for some kind of rule of law that would stand above the arbitrary use of political power was like not in their, the equation at all. They almost saw like the insurrectionist as analogous to like leftist protesters and were saying like, well, if the FBI goes after these people, you know, where next? As if that was like analogous to a Black Lives Matter protest or something.
1: What Trump And his base and the people around him have done is to politicize his criminality. We've now got a party that's pro criminal. So then they turn it around and they say, oh, this is a witch hunt. This is all political. Well, it's all political because they have inserted politics into a criminal matter. If he would just shut up, and let himself be prosecuted and take his punishment like a normal person, then it wouldn't be political. But he's politicized this. And he's tried to rally around, you know, encourage an insurrection the day he got booked. Uh, It didn't work, but he tried it, okay? And he's continuing to whip up hatred. So they're politicizing crime. Then they go, oh, well, this is all a political matter. Well, they've made it a political matter when it, in in essence, is not. Parenti and, and, and the rest of them are just buying that lock, stock, and barrel, as far as I can see. There are facts of the matter. There are laws. He's indicted for breaking laws. He's going to be indicted, it looks like, for breaking more laws, demands a criminal. Like Seth said, when you say it's politics, then you're either explicitly, like Parenti does, or implicitly saying Trump should be above the rule of law. Once you say that, you're a fascist or a monarchist or something like that.
0: Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Angie Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast.
3: Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayev The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing and all-out authoritarianism, extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activists and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us.
0: One form of left accommodation to Trumpism is to uh, critique the use of the term fascist in relation to Trump and to the MAGA base. For instance, recently on this podcast, we discussed um, Jacobin author Daniel Bessner's recent piece that dismissed the term fascism as a, like a meaningless signifier. What's your view on this question of the use of the term fascism?
2: I think fascism is a tricky ideology to define for a few important reasons. It's not impossible to define fascism or to say what fascism is. I think it's pretty easy to recognize that Trump is a fascist. And I think there are various ways that you can argue this. And I think uh, a more obvious way is just how much Trump resembles Hitler and Mussolini, the two chief historical fascists. And something that's very important about Mussolini and Hitler's political careers is how quickly they respectively imposed autocratic single party dictatorship in their countries. And they did that by out-populisming the populists. They walked right over the reactionary conservatives and converted them to fascism. They gained unprecedented political allegiance from the Christian right. And the comparisons between the three of them could go on. But I think that's an easy demonstration that Trump is very much a fascist. But the question goes on. I think it's a very important question. What is fascism and how does it relate to Trump? And it's not easy to get a one-sentence answer to, but Trumpism as a political movement, I would say, is also a fascist movement. It's not just people following a fascist guy who are not fascists. And I think a sensible way to test whether Trumpism is a fascist movement is by looking at a comparative study of fascist movement, like Robert Paxton's The Anatomy of Fascism. You can make a checklist or something, see how well the Trumpist movement fits the description. And I would say considering the extreme racism, misogyny, contempt for democracy, and political violence that distinguishes Trumpism, it's hard to see it as anything but a fascist movement. So as a political movement, I would say Trumpism is fascist. Trump personally is a fascist, but I'm not entirely satisfied with leaving the answer of why fascism is important right now there. And I think we can, not just me, we as a society should go further in asking what fascism is as a worldview. And as a worldview, it's more than just the actions of leaders and parties. And I think that's a difficult question to answer. There's an immense amount of potential ideological influences upon fascism. I've seen historians raise the issue that there are seeming ideological discrepancies between Italian fascism and German Nazism. But I've never heard anyone credibly argue that fascism is meaningless or that fascism can never happen again or that we don't need to worry about fascism and it's just a bogeyman. But in trying to understand where fascism comes from, I think, I don't know, the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche is an interesting borderline case of proto-fascist ideology, but there are clearer and more appropriate examples of fascist ideology. That I think start in late later 19th century Europe. Ultimately, what I think differentiates fascism from prior traditions of reactionary conservatism or Christian nationalism is fascism's obsessive interest in the specific pseudosciences of race and eugenics. And that's often united with a kind of faith in occult spirituality. So just characterizing fascism, I think the things to look out for are pseudosciences of race and eugenics especially but beyond hitler already before hitler took power fascist ideas were gaining influence in france and in Tsarist russia and in the u.s and hitler himself admired the political actions of mussolini but he also admired the anti-semitic propaganda of henry ford the ford motor cars tycoon because they were all wrapped up in delusions of biological pseudoscience. Stephen J. Gould, who is a biologist, I think, articulates it pretty well. I'll quote him, quote, biological arguments for racism may have been common before 1859, but they increased by orders of magnitude following the acceptance of evolutionary theory. The data were worthless. If the chorus of racist arguments did not follow the constraints of data, it must have reflected social prejudice pure and simple. And I think that's the roots of fascism and social prejudice are important to recognize in that fascism isn't just something that you're brainwashed into. You're choosing to believe and double down on these social prejudices that aren't based in fact and radicalizing your politics based in that. The effects of biological racism in fascism are pretty obvious, and I'm not going to go into Nazi anti Semitism. I think it's important. To talk about and research the history of the Holocaust, especially considering um, what's going on with younger generations in this country and the polling statistics I included in the article saying that so many Zoomers have no idea about basic historical facts about the Holocaust, but I can't do that. I recommend Saul Friedlander's two-volume work, Nazi Germany mm-hmm. and the Jews, very good overview. But, okay, so fascism as an ideology based in biological racism, but also the eugenics part is important to consider, that even the women of the race are not individuals, they're biological agents. Hitler said that the role of a woman is to preserve the nation down to its individual blood cells, and that's a horrific image or belief have, but I think it's pretty indicative of the kind of logic that people like Hitler or Trump or Putin have, even if they're not so explicit about it. It's just like I'm better and superior because of my blood. I should be able to procreate with whoever I want because of my blood and because I'm a man and things like that. You can't really understand fascism without the pseudoscience and without the anti-humanism. Because just think about how just cannot possibly understand or fathom the possibility that doctors and scientists are correct when they say that trans people deserve the right to seek appropriate medical care or that trans people deserve the right to use a public restroom. Like this is crank biology that is oppressing people and causing violence, political violence against them. And I think all of these things, the violent politics, the, due to scientific biology, the extreme misogyny, racism, and anti-Semitism are extreme problems, and they're coalescing in this movement under Trump that we have to fight. Um, So I don't understand why you would dismiss the importance of the threat of fascism right now.
1: In, in, In your response, you also said, and I think it's very important that the fascism is not just Trump or liking people like a fascist Trump. The Trumpite base has its own ideology, and it's a fascist ideology or a proto-fascist ideology. I don't know if you saw the Navigator poll that came out yesterday. It was uh, conducted by Global Strategy Group for, for Navigator, which is kind of like a consortium of uh, progressive political people they asked a series of questions about whether people have doubts about trump leading the republican party and among people who were republicans who responded who had no doubts raised by these things not even minor doubts not even major doubts not minor doubts no doubts less than half said they had any doubts at all of the Republicans about Trump leading the Republican Party because he said he'd be bringing back separation of uh, immigrant kids at the border. No doubts about that. No doubts about him leading the party when he claimed that he was allowed to take classified documents from the White House. No doubts about him leading the party after he said that he would pardon most of the uh, January 6th insurrectionists no doubts about him leaving the party when he he wouldn't commit to accepting the results of the upcoming election and continued to describe the uh, 2020 election uh, as rigged. No doubts when he says after the trial, he's never met E. -E Jean Carroll, she's a whack job, blah, blah, blah. The jury said uh, after less than three hours of deliberation, he sexually abused her, he defamed her. But less than half of the Republican respondents, less than half in all cases and in almost all the cases it's less than 40% said that they, that gave them any doubts about him leading the, the party. That just came out yesterday. I think there is a huge problem and it, it's it's not just Trump and it's not just people believing false things that he says It's it, he's expressing their ideology. It's, it's, it's rather clear from all of this. We, we've got a huge problem in this country and Trumpism is not just Trump and it's not just going to go away if, if if Trump goes away, you know there's DeSantis in the wings and there's Tucker Carlson and there's all the rest of
2: them. Right. Yeah, I think an important thing about Trump's subjugating the rest of the Republican Party to his ideology is how he seized on these social prejudices against women, gay people, black people. And instead of pushing them to the limit and using dog whistles, he broke through and just said things directly and people loved him for that and you can't easily go back to the same kind of dog whistles once the real intention has been exploded and made so obvious yeah people think think you don't really
1: mean it you know you say it but you're cagey in the way you say it so you can massage it and go go back on it you know you have to be totally out there then you're quote authentic
0: yeah you have there's a it's it's a competition you can't get any traction in the media you can't you can't trend your message unless you are more extreme than yesterday than whatever the message was yesterday that it, there's a certain acceleration of the crazy that is inherent in that type of politics it perfectly dovetails with the way you know the news cycles work now and the social media etc but it is a characteristic of fascism historically that there was a certain dynamic nature to it that fed on increasing the vitriol, increasing the violence. It's a politics that whips people up and resentment and anger and fear. And they have to, in order to stay in that state, you have to increase the amount of oxygen you're giving the fire or else it burns out. I don't understand people who dismiss the term fascism based on very specific, like historical elements of historical fascism. I especially find that, you know, you mentioned, Seth, the people who say the Nazis weren't fascists, right? Because I just find that hysterical. And it's like people get so lost in the trees and they don't see the forest. You know, of course, any political phenomenon, when it occurs in a country, it's going to have unique local characteristics, and you know unique temporal characteristics because of its moment in time and and history and place but that doesn't mean that the same type of politics can't emerge in other places and other times and have its own unique local flavor, historical flavor, because of the place and time that it's occurring in. People just get lost in, in the weeds. They get They get really into the trees. They identify all the very specific ideological thinkers that led to, like, Italian or German fascism. What were the strains of thought? What were the cultural currents in Germany? Blah, blah, blah. You know, what was the notion of the state? What was the historical moment in the Great Depression that led to, like, the need for a strong state, blah, 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 blah. And they get so into the the details that they lose the big picture of, like, what is fascist politics? And I think it's like if you take yourself out of that sort of really narrow way of understanding political movements and you look at the broad picture, it's not hard to see the emergence of fascism in America today. That kind of approach is just like putting your blinders on and not being able to see reality when it's staring you in the face. But maybe we should pivot and talk about liberal democracy as well as people on the left disparaging the need to defend the rule of law. We often hear on the left today people disparaging liberal democracy because it's not the ultimate. Obviously, like, liberal democracy under capitalism isn't social democracy. It's not a future society. So you address this in your paper in part by discussing Marx's article on political indifferentism, which he wrote in 1873. Can you tell us briefly what Marx meant by political indifferentism and why you refer to that article in your paper and how that's relevant to the defense of liberal democracy today?
2: In my view, Marx by political indifferentism means a philosophical apathy towards politics, but an apathy specifically premised upon having unrealistic political demands And uh, Marx is specifically criticizing utopian ideologues, or chiefly criticizing them, especially Pierre Proudhon, because they were discouraging workers from economic or political struggles in the here and now. Because, to quote Marx, the fatal conditions of this struggle have the misfortune of not being easily adapted to idealistic fantasies, end quote. I think unrealistic political demands have hampered resistance to Trumpism more than it's helped, at least just on the left, going back at least to the 2016 general election. And I see indifference and casual and unwarranted criticism of liberals for their political activity. Some people on the left assume that the resistance movement is a dead end because they don't see the purpose in protecting liberal democracy against fascism. They think that, reasonable political demands can't be socialist demands. And some people go even farther and say that the Democratic Party is no better than the Republicans. And I think the overturning of Roe versus Wade is kind of undeniable evidence that mass resistance to Trumpism and defense of liberal democracy are really urgently needed on the left, involving as many people (laughs) as possible. But We don't have the political luxury of experimenting with utopian suggestions, especially if they don't bring us any closer to freedom. Political indifferentism doesn't mean you're apolitical or just stick your head in the sand every time something having to do with politics comes up. You can be politically indifferent and respond to legitimate political questions and problems with answers like no war but the class war, or saying that Trump and the Democratic Party are the same neoliberal interest. but saying no war but the class war, or, Republicans, Democrats are two sides of the same evil coin. They sound like they're talking about politics, but really those kind of beliefs encourage people to be politically apathetic. You have to demonstrate Trump and the Democratic Party are equally bad, and the evidence doesn't demonstrate that. You're saying no war but the class war. I mean, that's usually brought up in the context of radical leftists trying to say something about Ukraine, not having anything useful to say. And ultimately, you know, what's being suggested, that the invasion of Ukraine— it's not the fault of the Ukrainians, but it's also none of the business of the left. The left just shouldn't care and should focus on the class war, whatever that means. I have trouble with these kinds of sentiments. I just don't really know how to respond to them. Like I could give a, a specific example of going to protests about abortion rights and people being there for Planned Parenthood and the Women's March and then people being there for their... Political party that's somehow Marxist Leninist or something. And the Marxist Leninists would, whenever a Democrat would come up to speak and be like, Democrats are part of the problem too. And I don't know, maybe you should listen to what the person is saying. But anything that resembles conventional political activity or even, I don't know, nonviolent political activity just isn't the kind of politics that some leftists want to participate in. The,
1: the, the way to respond to it is you're making the perfect the enemy of the good, right? We're not there yet. You've got a goal. But you can't get to the goal immediately. There's a, a process. People have to gain the recognition, the confidence, but many other things till they're going to say, yeah, I'm totally down with the struggle for a whole new society. That's it, it, not going to come immediately. It's going to come through their struggles, through their seeing the limitations of when they when they do gain something, that it, it, it doesn't go far, far enough. When you just dismiss all of that, you're cutting off the process and the people, the the subjective element that's going to make this happen. If you insist on some absolute standard as only this is worthy of our support, our engagement, and that's from the get-go, you're basically saying, I'm not going to let there be a process that can move us towards socialism. And in the end, it's a a form of reaction. That's how I would respond to it.
0: It's often, ironically, and a point of view, we hear from people who, who don't have a coherent concept of socialism in the first place, or their concept of socialism is just the New Deal. Uh, there's, there's nothing there that they're fighting for. It's just that they're pissed off that Bernie Sanders isn't on the Democratic ticket. It's like a, just a giant tantrum.
2: Right. Yeah. I kind of didn't want to mention it, but I think Bernie or Bust is a very obvious example of this political yeah. indifference. It's problem. not
0: like they actually are holding out for a real revolution, they're just like they're having a tantrum because Sanders didn't get elected. And so they're just saying a plague on both houses and acting like they're above it all. And it's also like you have to understand the political moment and what is going on in politics. Um, you can't just have like an abstract concept of politics. Like right now, the big issue facing a lot of countries is the fight against authoritarianism and fascism. That is the immediate threat. And if you don't have a politics that understands how to fight that urgently and in the moment, then it's not a real politics. It's just like a pretend politics, one that you like do like in, in fantasy and in your armchairs, but has no relationship to the actual immediate struggle on the ground. We, you can still have a concept of a future society and base your present politics in that struggle. You can, you can still think of the, the fight for socialism and have a realistic conception of current political moment and the need to fight against fascism. I think that's what MHI attempts to do.
1: So in terms of defending liberal democracy, there are different ways in which one might defend liberal democracy. For instance, people who think it's important to continually remind us that liberal democracy under capitalism isn't socialist democracy. You know, I mean, we know that, but some people want to remind us every day about that. Those kinds of people will, uh, as you put it in your essay, Seth, they will, quote, reluctantly agree that bourgeois rights are relatively preferable to a complete lack of rights under totalitarianism. And you say that that way of defending liberal democracy isn't enough. Why Why isn't it enough?
2: Well, when we're talking about liberal democratic rights, practices, I think it's important to not give all of the historical credit for them to political philosophers or bourgeois politicians. They're not just the brain children of people who are writing books or passing laws. Economic conditions and movements for political emancipation, I think kind of from a Marxist perspective, which I agree with, have been crucial factors for creating and securing liberal democratic rights anywhere in the world, as far as I can tell. In terms of the positive arguments for the practice of liberal democracy, I think Hegel and Marx can kind of articulate what I want to say better than I can. So I can quote Hegel, who said that, quote, the granting of civil rights gives to gives those who receive them a self-awareness as recognized legal persons in civil society, end quote. You know, civil society isn't utopia, and I don't think any reasonable person is claiming that it is, but I would say that civil rights in civil society allow individuals to be personally responsible for their political agency, and that's what I want to emphasize in this context. The personal responsibility for political agency allows for the development of human emancipation, for revolutionary liberation, but political emancipation is not practically sufficient to achieve human emancipation, which is Marx's point. And Marx said, quote, after history has been absorbed in superstition long enough, we absorb superstition in history. The question of the relations of political emancipation to religion becomes for us the question of the relation of political emancipation to human emancipation, end quote. So that's that's a Jewish question? Yes. I think that's a great way to frame a leftist Marxist defense of practice of liberal democracy. But what I want to emphasize about what's different about Marx's view is in the Communist Manifesto, he says it's the revolutionizing of the means of production under capitalism that sweeps away all, quote, fixed, fast, frozen relations with their train of ancient and venerable prejudices and opinions, end quote. And he also says that the individual is, quote, compelled to face with sober senses their real conditions of life and their relations with their kind end quote. The sober senses phrase should be familiar to MHI readers. But the sober senses themselves aren't guaranteed without effort, and they're not guaranteed without concern for the truth. They're not just a given of capitalist bourgeois society, but they are possible, I think. And my point is that if we shirk the political responsibilities which we have because our liberal democratic rights are not already fully realized human emancipation then we can't defend and, and and what limited freedom we have that that's
1: extremely important can can you say that again slowly
2: so i'm trying to say that if we shirk our political responsibilities if we ignore this self-awareness as recognized legal persons and do nothing with it then we have these responsibilities because of our limited liberal democratic right. And even though those liberal democratic rights are not fully realized human emancipation, we can't defend in advance what limited freedom we have if we just let them blow away in the wind.
1: I mean, it makes perfect sense to me. There's a process and we're in the midst of a process. And you're indifferent, you look the other way, you go, this isn't the ultimate, or you just do whatever. You're not defending the ground that you've gained. It's going to slip away. There's no permanent victories (laughs) in politics. We've learned that, you know, especially with the Dobbs decision most recently.
0: We still seem to hear this refrain that Trump is an economic populist. We hear it in the mainstream media, anytime Trump or another Trumpite says or does something contrary to laissez-faire orthodoxy. But you have a completely different interpretation of this stuff that gets labeled as economic populism. What's your interpretation, Seth?
2: In the U.S., maybe there are obvious self-recognized populists like Huey Long or something. And then there are people like Trump or Ron Paul who poses economic populists. But really, people are imposing that term on them. I think they're very selfish and not the same kind of egalitarian nonsense that Huey Long was proposing. But anyway, there are varieties of right-wing economic populism. But what made Trump's variety so much popular than the prior examples, like Ron Paul? You know, Republicans have always campaigned on the lie that Democrats are taxing and spending workers out of their paychecks and that Republicans have to lower taxes because that's how the economy works. That was involved in Trump's campaign. But Trump did something kind of different when he started attacking Democrats and Republicans for wasting money, for wasteful spending on foreign wars, which I think was his main concern with the Iraq invasion. And government drafting international trade deals like NAFTA, Trump was attacking NAFTA pretty early on in his political career. And people saw this, Trump supporters and many leftists saw him attacking NAFTA and other Republicans. And I think they kind of willfully misinterpreted Trump's intention. I think, you know, Trump isn't especially articulate. It takes a lot of extrapolation to kind of get what he's really saying about policy sometimes. But I think the misconception is that Trump is somehow opposing the ruling class and also that he's going to give the people what they want, at least the white conservative Christian people base. But I really just see that economic populism and these kind of weird Not traditionally conservative policy proposals. I think they're just a byproduct of his narcissism. I think his singular policy proposal, the summary of his politics, is I alone can fix it. And that's what he says because he believes that he has superpowers. He's the world's greatest deal maker. But what happens when deals don't go his way? He says that it's because other people conspired against him maliciously. But in reality, I mean, he has no concern for other people. He's not an egalitarian in any respect. He's a terrible and incompetent businessman. He's a white-collar criminal. He has no understanding of standard procedures or ethical norms. And he's incompetent to fix any purported economic problems. The protectionism is not something that politicians in the U.S. talk about so openly, as far as I know. But when he started saying that, We're going to build things in America and tax China. And I think some people thought maybe this would work out in my best interest. But what does he really do as a politician? I mean, he treats the government like it's a corporation, like it's his private corporation where he gets to fire anyone who doesn't subjugate themselves to him or if he just doesn't like someone. And then he hires and promotes yes men, no matter how unqualified or unethical they are. I mean, populism is this kind of two-sided concept, in my opinion, where people think it's a politics intended to benefit at least a majority of the population. But when you look at actual populists, that's not the practical outcome
1: I think in in your essay, Seth, you also linked the what it gets called economic populism. You you said that what he was actually proposing was just an expression of his his,
2: his racism. I think it's difficult to understand right wing anti elitism without racism. Trump specifically targets not necessarily wealthy people, but politicians when they are black or a woman or not Christian. Kind of the people he wants around him and the people that he doesn't applies in every sphere of his life.
0: Yeah, I mean, one question is whether he's even appealing to people on economic populist terms, or whether it's it's just racist politics being interpreted as economic populism. Because sometimes we hear on the left, like, you know, you see Jacobin articles that are like, don't believe Trump's populism, it's not genuine, because look, he's appealing to people on these economic populist terms, but he's just pulling the wool over their eyes. And then they just give all the examples of how he helps the rich, you know, tax breaks, blah, 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 blah. OK, you know, that's true. He's clearly not an not kind of populist. But, but then inherent in that argument is the people that are trying to say that his base is being motivated by populist promises, which I seem to amount to, oh, we're going to have trade tariffs and we're going to bring back American jobs, blah, blah, blah. But it doesn't seem like the polling supports the thesis that those sort of promises are what are bringing out the Trump base and keeping the base, like, rapidly supportive of of Trump despite all the crazy shit he's done. And the studies seem to show that it's the authoritarianism, the sexism, the racism, that's what appeals to the base. And so the logical thing to assume would be that to the extent that he makes some overtures toward populist promises that they're only really resonating with the base to the extent that they're interpreted as being anti-Chinese or anti-Mexican or pro-American. The fact that they have some sort of nativist, angry narrative about victimhood and the rejuvenation of the American man, to the extent that that's the implied politics in whatever statements are being interpreted as economic populist, that's probably why they have a resonance in the base, not because people are like, oh, yeah, I really want the government to redistribute income and make life better for the working man. You know, that doesn't seem to be the appeal.
1: You know, I I looked at this when I I did my statistical study of Obama-Trump voters, people who voted for Obama, you know, in 2012, uh, flipped to Trump in 2016. You know, they get get them responding to questions, but then there's like an open-ended part where they say, what might make you vote for Trump? And economic issues were, like you say, Brendan, rare, rarely mentioned. The big thing was immigration, 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 right, cultural war stuff also. But even when you get to the economics, what was the economics about? Well, people would mention jobs. And sometimes they mention immigration and jobs. And the the link between them is this idea that the immigrants are taking away jobs from from real Americans, you know, white people and so forth. So the survey results, this is voter files. The voter files confirm exactly what you're saying saying among these uh, Obama Trump voters.
2: In terms of the relationship between the racism and the economic attitudes, yeah, I really think that the racism and pulling the cart of economic policies here, the way Trump and Trump is to talk about trade deals with China or just any economic relationship with China. I mean, the view of the global economy on the fascist right is a war of all against all at the national level where there's no mutual benefit. There's one winner and one loser in every Decision that's made, and that's why Trump is presenting himself as a deal maker instead of the economic analyst.
1: Seth, it, you also write in your essay, "quote It's a theoretical contradiction to consider reactionary propaganda any kind of left politics." I guess this is a reference again to people like Christian Parenti and so forth. But you also say there is a long, undeniable history of propagandists of every stripe blurring distinctions between left and right. So the question is how do we deal with this problem of this blurring of the distinction between left and right and making reactionary politics look like leftism? What you suggest is, quote, getting through to individual contrarians and denialists, the propagandists who blur the distinctions, you say getting through to them is less important than, quote, strategizing how the real resistance movement can dry up their influence. The future of the left depends on its ability to overcome this recurring problem of appropriating, accommodating, or associating with reactionary politics, how we fight reactionary politics is a test of our commitment to freedom, end quote. So what do you mean by how we fight reactionary politics, and why do you say that the future of the left depends on this? Well, ultimately, I think we have
2: to, as leftists, take the truth seriously in our political organizing and activism if we want to sort out this issue of reactionary leftism or reactionary thought entering into leftist political movement. I think this all ultimately relates to the problem post-truth politics across the spectrum. And I think that post-truth politics implies at least a practical opposition to sensible political theory. You know, how are you going to rationally justify and debate the merits of your political theory if there's no such thing as truth? Despite that, some people have made careers off of twisting the truth and when they talk about liberal democracy, especially, or when they talk about the interests of the working class. And more often than not, it's unrealistic to expect them to clean up the mess that they've made in terms of their rhetoric and ideology. But I would be very happy if a lot of people... On the left would apologize and recant for spreading misinformation. I think this is, you know, you could look at many cases of famous leftists denying genocides and how they never responded to the facts that disproved their statements. Prove that the problem of post-truth politics is obvious and it's extreme on the right, but it's also thrived in certain leftist movements. And I think George Sorel. Is a notorious ideologue among fascist historians, is the guy who was one of the main proponents, at least, of fascist ideology within the 1900s European left. And I, don't, I don't want to go into too much detail about him, but I think part of his appeal in his time had to do, or even still, has to do with the way he misappropriated Marx quotes. He just threw Marx quotes in his writing that had nothing to do with what Marx was talking about. But Sorel's own philosophy, which is not Marx's philosophy, can be summed up pretty quickly. He said, quote, when one stands on the ground of myths, one is safe from all refutation, end quote. And I think that belief is so glaringly opposed to Marx's critical philosophy, and especially to his challenge to engage in politics with sober senses. If fascism is only consciously resisted when it coalesces into a political movement, then our recourses for defending ourselves against it. Are maybe in a best case scenario, voting and enforcing the rule of law against it, holding Trump to account for his crimes through the legal process as it exists, and trying to, through liberal democratic political means, shut out fascist politics as much as possible. But in a worst case scenario, if we're not consciously resisting fascism until it's here in front of our faces, then ultimately, we could end up in a disaster scenario where we're resisting fascism when it has become a violent and militarized state. Obviously, that form of resistance would be illegal because fascists don't want any challenge, but it's also extremely dangerous. And I think some people kind of fantasize about the adventure of getting into street fights with fascists, and I think that possibility is very terrifying. I think that's a sign of Things already getting too far, so I don't support that kind of adventurism. If we don't work out and apply the theory necessary for mass resistance to succeed against fascism and Trumpism, then we won't be able to overcome the underlying problems of fascism and will continue to be compelled to react by catastrophes in the future, like the attempted insurrection of the U.S. government or the overturning of Roe versus Wade or the invasion of Ukraine, I mean, there are so many examples. We can't only stand up when the chips are down, so to speak. But we have to consciously work together in overcoming this problem.
1: I think what you're saying is very important. Before fascism manifests itself with violence and state power, there's the ideology. And the core of the ideology is, to use the the title of the famous Nazi movie, The Triumph of the Will. And what you're telling us is underlying this triumph of the will is the triumph of myth, George Sorrell. What we need to do to oppose it is the fresh air of fact, and, and truth and fighting for pro-truth ethos, pro-truth politics, pro-truth against post-truth. So consciously or unconsciously, the post-truth stuff and the embrace of myth as a way of doing politics prepares the ground for fascism. And so it's, it's it comes in well before they've actually got gangs and smashing glass and overturning rights. Have I got you correctly?
0: yeah yeah well i think it's been a great discussion so thank you seth so much for coming on the podcast and hope people check out the piece and engage with us online give us give us your your comments and feedback right to us let us know what you're thinking so thank you seth yeah
2: thank you very much <laughs>
0: Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of radio free humanity if you like the podcast please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others as always if you like the podcast we encourage you to write to us to comment and rate the podcast and of course to share with all your friends and enemies